0: Can we learn anything from the U.S. Civil War about our present moment, our present challenges, and developments in our news? In one of your recent articles, you present a cautionary note about, and this is super cool, uh, Mr. Lowenstein, a cautionary note about trading with the enemy. (laughs) There are some parallels uh, between 19th century cotton and 21st century oil trade, right?
1: Uh, very much so, and and very disturbing in both cases. Uh, to start with the 21st century, we're reading every day how uh, Germany and uh, Italy and other European states are getting tremendous amounts of oil and gas from Putin. So, Which is crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Even as they're sanctioning the Russians, speaking out against them, they're as horrified as we are at what's going on. Guess who's paying for his war? I mean, it's, as we're speaking, it's, it's <laughs> happening. It is uh, crazy. Yeah. So- the North was in a very similar situation. The North needed uh, Southern cotton, and they also uh, wanted the British and French to get Southern cotton because they they were afraid that the British would intervene in the war on the side of the South or intervene to force a ceasefire and, and, and keep the two halves of America uh, independent.
0: Did you know that the U.S. dollars in your wallet carry no interest, and you can't just walk up to a Federal Reserve Bank say, the one in San Francisco or Kansas City, give them the dollars in your wallet and ask for gold (laughs) in return. Of course you knew that. It wouldn't even occur to you to think of that silly possibility, right? But did you know that in the Civil War, President Lincoln's introduction of paper money, the greenbacks, which carried no interest and were not redeemable for gold, was outright revolutionary. Kind of like cryptocurrency now, but much more so. Back then, paper currency was perceived by many as a moral failing of our government, and some even called it blasphemy. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is April 8th, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this "peel into History Behind News. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive, regardless of what they share we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them so the peel dot news is not for everyone if you want headline news well you know where to get that but if you want to explore how we got here if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our tv and device screens then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink And let's get into it. Historians have a tendency to nerd out on the many supposed lessons we can glean from history. In reality, some of the connections they thread between the past and present are, well, they tend to be a bit of a stretch. The U.S. Civil War ended in 1865. So, what did those four horrific years from more than 155 years ago have in common with our time? Surprisingly, quite a bit. For example, we can compare the isolation of Russia's President Putin and his oligarchs with that of Confederacy's President Jefferson Davis and his supporters, the rich slaveholding planters of the South. We can also compare the financial, strategic, and geopolitical importance of Russia's primary commodities, oil and gas, to that of the Confederacy's cotton. After all, cotton was king in the 19th century. We can also compare the crazy idea of paper money in the 1860s with the crazy idea of pixel money now. Of course, I'm referring to cryptocurrency. But not to worry, we, that is you and I, don't have to do any of this because Roger Lowenstein, our guest in this episode, does it all for us. Mr. Lonestein reported for the Wall Street Journal for more than a decade. His writings and writings about his books appear in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Fortune, the New York Times, Atlantic, the Washington Post, and many other publications. He has written several New York Times bestsellers about different important personalities and periods In the economic and financial history of the United States. In this episode, we focus on analyzing our current news developments to what we can learn from his latest book, the title of which is Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War. To learn more about Mr. Lowenstein, his books and many other publications, visit his homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Mr. Lowenstein and I peel the history behind this news.
2: The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast.
0: Mr. Lowenstein, it is such a pleasure to have you back on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. You recently published a superbly researched book. Its title is Ways and Means: Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War. As you know, at the PL Dot News podcast, we don't do history for its own sake. Rather, We talk about history in the context of current news uh, to provide some perspective for our current events. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Your Civil War book has so much to teach about current events. We'll start with one example. Russia's war with Ukraine. The points that you highlight in this book and in your later publications, including one in the Wall Street Journal and other media, really resonate with events in Ukraine. So let's, let's get started. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, made some gross miscalculations. What were they and how do they relate to Russia's president, Mr. Putin? Sure. His His, gross miscalculations.
1: And by the way, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, Well, the first miscalculation of Jefferson Davis and his fellow planters was to secede. And the reason they seceded was because they thought uh, they were immune uh, from attack by the North, and and they thought that the that Europe, if the North was so Immune from at attack, Europe, is that
0: what you said? Immune, immune, from
1: immune. immune. Wow, uh, James James Hammond, Senator from South Carolina, uh, went onto the Senate floor in 1858, and he said, "Cotton is king; no one dares touch us. Cotton is king," and they believe this. They believe this when uh, when the when the Confederacy seceded, and uh, war was just starting up. The Secretary of War. Uh, a man named Walker said, uh, if there's any, uh, if any blood is shed, and he took his handkerchief out of his pocket with a, a dramatic flourish, he said, if any blood is shed, I can clean it up
0: with this. Uh,
1: that was how little. Uh, so he feared. expected
0: that no violence would occur. There wouldn't be a war. That's what you mean.
1: It wouldn't be a real war. There wouldn't yeah. be a real war. Exactly. exactly. And this is the secretary and, of war of of, 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 of the, the Confederacy. Confederacy. Yeah, of the Confederacy. And the reason they had this, um, uh, obviously, delusionary overconfidence is they thought that uh, their cotton oligopoly uh, would protect them. The South shipped uh, three quarters of the world's cotton, they produced three quarters of the world's cotton. Uh, cotton was the the fossil fuel, if you will, of the 19th century. It was a basic industry, the first real industry that made the Industrial Revolution go. It supplied the mills up here where I am in New England. It supplied the mills of England, the mills of France, and, and, and really all of Europe. And they thought they were just. Um, uh, their product was too valuable for anyone to risk a war on it. And that if there were a war, uh, Europe would intervene uh, to stop it. And This is very similar, I think, to get back to current events, to the miscalculation that Vladimir Putin has made. Uh, however, also, the war, uh, well, I, I think however the war, we don't know what the ending of the story is in the Ukraine yet, but clearly it's going uh, tougher uh, than Putin thought. Uh, I think Putin thought because Germany and other NATO countries were so dependent on his oil and gas, uh, the cotton of the 21st century. If oh, you
0: will. The, co- the oil related to cotton. Okay.
1: Yes. Yes. And I, I, I think there's a, uh, another comparison, which is uh, these commodity producers, they get so taken with their power that um, they sort of develop in an intellectual cocoon. They become secluded uh, from the rest of the world. Uh, obviously, uh, Putin has this theory that the democracies were weak, that he could do what he wanted with them. Uh, he he he, uh, he doesn't listen to anybody, even in Russia now. He's he's isolated himself, uh, and only takes advice uh, from a few people sitting at the other end of the table. Apparently, if he even takes advice from them, he's he's um, you know, that's what's so scary. I think about this period is is he so isolated?
0: Um, so let's 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 parse that apart if if we can, please. Uh, was Jefferson Davis during the Civil War isolated, uh, and, and his uh, colleagues? The,
1: the the Southern planters and and the, the Southern Confederacy. It was not a popular movement. It came only from the planters, only from the top. Only twenty five percent of the Southerners had slaves. That was the reason they were seceding. Only five percent were significant slaveholders. And yes, they um they were in an intellectual cocoon, isolated. They had this theory that. Slavery was a superior labor system, that the North was going to implode <laughs> because, because uh, we had labor conflict where they supposedly had a harmonious uh, a system, very harmonious if, if, if you keep uh, your workers uh, in chains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and right. and um, it was, it was um, you know, the same way Putin shuts down the press, uh, they wouldn't hear of anything else. Um, a couple of years before the war would break out, a man named Hinton Rowan Helper in North Carolina came out with a fascinating book called The Impending Crisis of the South and he was a son of a poor slaveholder mm-hmm. and what he said was uh, the planters are selling all the rest of us uh, white commoners a bill of goods slavery is not good for us not good for the poor man obviously not good for the black man but not good for the poor white man or the common white man either we so- have lower standard living we have less education less mobility they banned the book. It was the bestseller in the North. They wouldn't publicize it. They wouldn't distribute it. They wouldn't sell it. They blocked it in the mails. They shut themselves off from this idea that um, uh, slavery was uh, not a productive, forward, uh, more efficient system. Uh, and I, I think in these in these um, intellectual cocoons, in these intellectual islands, you get these delusions because people aren't breathing the free air of uh of dissent and other ideas, and I think the two societies are, are not uncommon in that respect.
0: That's really interesting. And I, just to clarify for myself and our audience, uh, the uh, the author of the book in the South that was saying that look, uh, slavery is not an efficient uh, labor system, was a Southern white gentleman. Is that he was a Southern
1: white gentleman? He was the son of what was known then as a poor slaveholder. So somebody had two, three, four slaves. Not uh, not one of these uh, uh, you know Scarlett O'Hara types with mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with dozens and dozens a big plantation but but basically a poor farmer who uh, in modern times might have had two or three field hands paid field hands but in that era they were slaves but but um, not enough to make uh, uh, you know to make much to to live any kind of a grand life and um, uh, he looked up at how average farmers lived in Massachusetts Pennsylvania. Rhode Island, Ohio, and said, "You know that system's better. They have more industry. They have more opportunity, more mobility. This planter system works great for the planters, uh, but not for anybody else."
0: So uh, that book was banned by Southern states. They they went through all sorts of stratagems to prevent uh, banned Southern by and- Southern.
1: First, he tried to publish it in the South. Nobody would touch it. He went to New York and uh, to publish it. Uh, then various states uh, banned it from being sold there. Uh, they told their postal offices to stop it in, in the in the mails. Uh, was it legal? Probably not to do that, but they did it uh, anyway. anyway. And um, the the governor of Georgia echoed this when the war starts, secession starts. A man named Joseph Brown said, uh, "Slavery is the poor man's best government." Very fascinating comment. Slavery is the poor man's best government. Lincoln at the time was proposing all sorts of modern changes, uh, uh, colleges, Homestead Act, Transcontinental Railroad. He wanted the government to do things for the people. What this guy, Joseph Brown, was saying is, our government's not going to do any of that. We'll give you one thing and one thing only, slavery, meaning you poor whites will at least be one rung on the ladder above the enslaved class. That's what we'll do for you. And
0: only that. That was the bargain. And that financial system ended up not working in the long run. Um, You made a comment. I want to make sure I'm not making much of it, but it it was interesting enough for me to go back to it. You made a comment about um, Mr. Putin's view. I'm paraphrasing here. Mr. Putin's view of the weakness of democracies. Is that what you said?
1: Yes, I think he views democracy as being um, uh, intrinsically weak. Uh, subject to inefficiencies and discord, you know, I mean, Winston Churchill said it right. Democracy is the worst system, uh, except for any other one that has been tried, and and it's it's, it's easy to it's it's uh, you know anything you want to say. Winston Churchill said better. We have to recognize that <laughs> exactly. And so it's easy for uh, Putin to look at all the inefficiencies, the divisions of democracy. It's easy for us to get discouraged sometimes, but you know we have. We have an advantage, he doesn't. We have the consent of the governed. Uh, We can't fight an unpopular war uh, forever and ever and ever without discontent, without a change of office and so on. We'll throw the bums out. Uh, We'll see what the process is in in Russia for that, but it's surely more cumbersome.
0: How does that relate to the Civil War? Well,
1: I think the uh, South uh, misjudged uh, the essential strength of the North
0: because uh, the North was a relatively more democratic.
1: Uh, more democratic. And and because of that, uh, Lincoln was um, crafting a government and administration that was working overtime to, uh, to, for the Northern people, not only to win the war, but to prop up the Northern economy. Uh, he passed the Homestead Act, a Railroad Act. He created um, a modern tax system, the first we ever had, so that the currency wouldn't inflate the, in the South. Uh, where the government really only answered to the planters, uh, they refused to tax because the wealth was the planters and the currency, as a result of that and some other things, inflated. It inflated to, if you can believe this, uh, by nine to 9,000%. 9, uh, a barrel of flour oh, went from to get, to get that.
0: into that. Uh, but your point, um, I'd love to get into inflation and uh, points that you're making, but your point regarding uh, the South is that did they misperceive democracy as the weakness of the North?
1: They did. They did. Oh, they, wow. Well, they, they, they really misperceived, I should restate that, they misperceived free labor as the, as the weakness of the North. I they see. really thought that in the Northern, this is the beginning of the industrial era, the North is just starting to get large factories, large workforces, and they thought it would be a a cauldron of labor unrest. And of course, there was some of that. but. But for this reason, they thought uh, their system, where they'd done away with labor strife uh, by, putting, <laughs> by putting the labor in chains, was a superior system. Uh, that, that, that was their belief.
0: In one of your recent articles, you present a cautionary note about, and this is super cool, uh, Mr. Lowenstein, a cautionary note about trading with the enemy. <laughs> there are some parallels uh, between 19th century cotton and 21st century oil trade right
1: Uh, very much so and and very disturbing in both cases uh to start with the 21st century we're reading every day how uh germany and uh, italy and other european states are getting tremendous amounts of oil and gas from putin so which is crazy it's crazy (laughs) even as they're sanctioning the russians speaking out against them they're as horrified as we are at what's going on. Guess who's paying for his war? I mean, it's as we're speaking, it's, it's <laughs> happening. It is yeah. crazy. Yeah. So the North was in a very similar situation. The North needed uh, Southern cotton, and they also uh, wanted the British and French to get Southern cotton because they, they were afraid that the British would intervene in the war on the side of the South or intervene to force a ceasefire and, and, and keep the two halves of America uh, independent. So uh, as, uh, and they had a further problem as the Northern armies took various regions of the South cities, areas, counties, you know, occupied them. uh, They became responsible for the people they're eating, you know, and, 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 and surviving. So there was going to be some trade Lincoln authorized the system or proposed and Congress passed a system whereby the secretary of the treasury could go in and, uh, authorize agents to trade with southerners and buy their cotton wait wait, wait wait we're at war with the south we're at war with them we have embargoed every port they can't ship anything out but what this said was if you can find loyal southerners who who swear in an oath etc <laughs> and of course it was absolutely crazy because an oath wasn't worth the you know the parchment in which it was written on, if it was even written down. And regardless of what the seller said, once the money passed into the South, it was going to enter the coffers of the Confederacy. Uh, Grant, General Grant, and General Sherman were furious. They both said they passed orders in their in their occupied territories that said, if you're going to buy, if you're going to uh, fulfill this law, you can't use any currency. You have to pay for an IOU after the war, which were to shut it down, which is what they wanted. The the uh, Treasury Department rescinded those orders. Uh, Sherman exploded. He said, uh, "We cannot make war on a people and uh, and trade with them at the same time." It seems obvious, sense. yeah. But this this trade continued. Lincoln was deluged with requests for permits from his family, his friends, from Mary, his wife's family, all sorts or of southerners. The quote, yeah, or, or just northern profiteers. Everybody wanted to go down and say for for the good, honest purposes of helping the union, uh, you know, they were going to take out Southern cotton, which was worth two, four, then six times as much, uh, you know, in the wharf of New York as it was down South where, where they couldn't, they couldn't export it. So, uh, it was a, and, and the thing that was so terrible about it was uh, a big point of the book, the South fought very nobly and bravely in the battlefield, but they were losing the economic war, uh, from the beginning. And, uh, they were really on the ropes economically and this trade with the north was uh, really keeping them uh, in business much longer than they had to be
0: maybe maybe we send this podcast to Germany and other european countries to learn to learn a lesson from uh, the u.s civil war huh I,
1: I i really think that's true that um that w- the west is really making a a terrible mistake uh, and by the way i don't think it's Going to end when the fighting ends because the if uh, if as I suspect this is going to end in sort of an uneasy stalemate with Russian armies occupying some of eastern Ukraine but yeah. not other parts. You know we're going to be in the position ongoing. Do we want to finance Putin or not? And um, I think it it behooves the West to stop. It behooves the United States to to uh, ship some of our oil and gas. To these european nations that need it even if we have to start rationing we yeah. um we it, it is a crazy policy and you know in the book the you, you'll see the comments of both grant and sherman uh they are apoplectic at, at one point uh, uh lincoln's very afraid to cross grant because he's the only general for a while who's winning any uh, battles and is actually willing to fight yeah and willing to fight willing like, to fight. Unlike mcclellan exactly so uh yes at one point lincoln says uh uh, to McCle- uh, McClellan or to McClellan, he says, "I would like to borrow your army if you're not going to use it." So, so, but, but, uh, and that's a footnote. But, but anyway, um, uh, somebody writes uh, Lincoln for permission uh, to send a ship down south uh, to uh, or an expedition down south to buy cotton and trade with, and trade in return all sorts of things, salt, food that they need. And Lincoln says, "Well, I have to ask General Grant." He doesn't want to cross Grant on this policy. Yeah, yeah the yeah. whole lot, and and Grant says very sarcastically, he says, "I've absolutely refused to choose this method of supporting the Southern Army." <laughs> you know, like, why is he? In, these people are, and and then it's a problem that loyal soldiers in the North, they don't want to fight if 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 they see profiteers all around them. That fighting for patriotism is one thing. Immoralizing. Yeah, fighting to make these profiteers rich—that's another story. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I uh, I, urge—I mean, I I really think the West should take a a lesson from this, and including the U.S.
0: and and uh, you know, not trade with these war makers. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about cryptocurrency now and the shock of paper money during the Civil War? We'll be back. Did you know? that before the Civil War, Americans carried directors with them. Directories that told them how much different dollar notes issued by different banks were actually worth. In Season 2, Episode 12, Professor Eichen Green of UC Berkeley Economics talks about the chaos of this privately issued currency, as well as cryptocurrency, and get this, bitcoins from a volcano. And in Season 2, Episode 11, Professor White of George Mason University, Department of Economics, explains how supply chain constraints should have little to do with inflation. That inflation is mainly a product of our national monetary policy, as determined by the Federal Reserve. Speaking of the Federal Reserve, do you know the unlikely story of how this powerful financial institution was established? Mr. Lowenstein was our guest before, in Season 1, Episode 18, during which he told the story of how the Fed came about. It was like a covert operation that included a German immigrant and semi-secret meetings, and necessitated political stratagems to push the Fed bill through Congress. The links for these episodes as well as the link for our podcast series on the U.S. economy are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our present conversation with Mr. Lowenstein. Mr. Lowenstein, in your book, you talk about the shock, and I'm using your words here, the shock of the introduction of paper money. Politicians <laughs> calling it blasphemy, and they were worried about the moral implications of paper money. Uh, what's going on here? I mean, it was high drama. It's as if they were talking about the war itself. We're talking about money, for well, crying out loud.
1: So you have to understand the system money the United States had before. Uh, before the Civil War. Before the Civil War, exactly. Uh, there were gold coins and silver coins. Uh, there were treasury notes uh, that paid interest that were redeemable with the treasury for gold. So, this is it's really all a gold backed system. And then there were notes that private notes that individual banks handed out, uh,
0: IOUs, but these weren't legally money. You could, so, you could uh, if you would. could, you if I may interrupt you, please. Yeah, this is an important point. By private notes, you mean. Bank of America writes a private note that you yes. take it to another branch or you take to Wells Fargo. This is not a U.S. Treasury. This is not a Correct. government note. This is Correct. literally, when you say private note, you literally mean a private note. Yes. Well,
1: okay, and it wouldn't have been called Bank of America then because there were no national banks. Yeah, It would have been, uh, you know, First Bank of Ohio or, uh, you know, or Cincinnati. Or bank in New and, York. And, yes. And uh, so you, you know, you, you deposit something in that bank, they give you a note, maybe you go across the, stru- uh, the street and buy something at a dry goods store, because he knows the bank too, and he takes the note. But if you go one state away or two states away, they may not yeah. take the note, or they'll discount it. We, so we had this, um, this you know, babble of, of multi-currencies, of thousands and thousands of different banknotes. Uh, no, nobody knew what they were all worth, or what one was worth in relation to another. It was a, a terribly inefficient a uh, polyglot system, and it uh, it, it wasn't uh, enough to finance a great undertaking, in the Civil War. We didn't have enough gold and silver. Uh, they ran out of uh, gold. The government ran out of gold and silver to fund the war. So they had to come up with something because the soldiers weren't being paid, and it's very important to pay the soldiers of course uh, in the yeah. war. And and they and the contractors weren't being paid. The people who supplied the the uniforms, and the ammunition, yeah, the and, all that. and all of that. Yeah. So so they came up with this system. They would print money. Uh, they would print paper. And call it money. Now that's exactly what we have now. You know, you, if, if you take a bill out of your wallet, it says legal tender. It's official money. Nobody can refuse it, uh, and it doesn't pay interest, right? The dollar in your wallet does not pay interest. What's well, uh, Of course,
0: is that and is you can't. really, re- you,
1: you say, of course, but back then, what do you mean? You want me to carry a piece of paper around and it won't pay interest? <laughs> what, what do I get for it? And you can't. see <laughs> so you you that was the mentality. They, 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 yes. And you can't redeem it. If you take that dollar to the treasury and you ask them to redeem it, they give you another dollar. So it was, it was, and that was the same with this paper. So this was a story. What you mean is
0: that back then they could take a note and redeem redeem it
1: it for gold. But, but there wasn't enough gold to fight this war, not nearly. So they, uh, they had to issue a paper, which was not backed by gold. Let me just, let me just give you a little antecedent
0: in the beginning
1: of the war. The Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon Chase, beginning the Civil War.
0: Who was uh, a borrowed- who, Chase
1: was a Lincoln rival for the presidency, yes, right? Yes, he was, okay. he was one of the one of the defeated rivals, not very happy about being second fiddle, actually challenged <laughs> him, challenged him from within his own cabinet in 1864 for the second term. Oh, but boy. Chase Chase begins the war by borrowing gold from the banks. He borrows 50 million. The banks are very unhappy. It basically taps them out. And at a celebratory dinner, one of the bankers gets up and says, Mr. Secretary, you borrowed the august sum of 50 million. That should quite do it. That should be enough to finance the war. And uh, don't come back. Well, I have to tell you that before the war was over, they would spend that, Chase would spend that sum 60 times over. Oh, so wow. how are they going to get that? So their first thing is paper money. And this horrifies people for the, all the reasons I've said. Also, because they're afraid that this will discredit America in the eyes of, uh, of responsible foreign nations, like England. Uh, One one congressman says uh, uh, paper money is no more, paper bills are no more money than a contract to deliver flour is flour itself. They thought- (laughs) That's a good analogy, I like that. (laughs) Yes, they thought of paper money as a promise to pay money, the real thing, gold and silver, right? So, but but there was not enough gold and silver. So they approved um, this money. And uh, to their surprise, actually, it was very, very popular among the people. In fact, to Jefferson Davis's uh, great, uh, a great chagrin, it was even popular in the South. The oh Confederacy boy. passed a law against dealing in, in in Union greenbacks. They came to be known colloquially, obviously, as greenbacks, but, but that didn't stop it. As uh, Northern troops occupied Southern territory, they would go into stores, buy things, and bit by bit, the greenback permeated the South. It was an early warning sign. The South's in trouble.
0: Economically in trouble. Um, Mr. Lorenstein, let's just go back for a second. We sort of jumped. We went through this period of consternation, wars like blasphemy, immorality of paper money, and then it became popular. Was there some sort of compromise? How did they get people to use this paper money that, as you say, didn't bear interest and wasn't tradable for gold? How did they get people to use it? How, How do you use it then?
1: Well, I mean in a sense people had no choice because uh, uh, when the soldiers were paid in greenbacks that's what they were they were paid with but and then when they went into a store it's a legal tender nobody could refuse it and um it, what do you mean, they were what's really a legal,
0: what's a legal tender?
1: Well, legal tender means it is money of the nation. It, it, it's it's valid for all debts. Uh, you, you cannot refuse it. it. It it is money. It is legally money. It has a value. Oh,
0: so, so is that something that the government declared that this is legal tender? That was part of this bill. Now there
1: was a compromise, uh, and the compromise was very controversial. Uh, the, w- w- one of the big points of contention was: suppose I borrowed money before this act in gold. This act comes along; I can repay it in paper. That, that's why people were so horrified. I you kidding me? To them, you've, you've it's like. It's like you borrowed a stallion, and you're going to repay an old broken-down mare, you know. But um, this was the law. This was, the, you know, I borrowed gold, but but this legal tender now has a standing of gold. But they were so worried that uh, this would um, uh, ruin our reputation among foreign creditors, and 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 we were a we were a borrower nation then, a very dependent in many periods in the 19th century on European credit. That they wanted to protect our reputation, protect our credit overseas, particularly a man named William Fessenden, who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, who came from Maine, came from Portland, Maine, uh, very much part of the Portland mercantile community that was very dependent on the transatlantic trade. So he put forth a compromise in this bill, and he said that even though legal tender is valid for all debts, and even though uh, uh, taxes, uh, all taxes. Uh, may be paid in legal tender, one one obligation and only one would still have to be paid in gold. Uh, and that was uh, U.S. government bond debt. So if the U.S. government borrowed money, uh, they would pay creditors, they would pay their investors in gold. Now,
0: that almost the, makes it sound like two different currencies. If you're exactly. rich, if you're rich and your stockbroker, I don't know what stockbrokers were called back there or whatever, your financial uh, uh, advisor buys you $2 million worth of US bonds, now you get to get gold, right? Is exactly. A- so oh, wow. so the, progr- the
1: progressives in the Congress were apoplectic. They said this creates two classes of money, one for the rich, one for the poor. So soldiers, ordinary people, they would get paper uh, while investors would get paid in gold. But that's how it went down. And that's and it was only because of that the Congress approved it.
0: But I think the linchpin to success, at least from sort of my, my analysis as we talk right now is that it was made legal tender. So a soldier could literally walk up and buy something and the shopkeeper couldn't say, no, we don't take greenbacks because it was go ahead.
1: That's that that's correct. That's correct. I mean, legal tender. And, and there were really two debates. One, should we have this money? And secondly, and the more controversial one was, was, uh, should we make it legal tender? And the opponent said, well, it's going to be inflation, uh, and uh, on the other side, they said, well, the bills won't inflate anymore, making them legal tender. Uh, th- this will just uh, make it a currency that everyone will use and, and has to use. And um, it, it,
0: it worked out pretty well, I would say. Um, by the way, um, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, um, uh, President Biden recently issued an executive order about uh, sort of studying uh, digital currency uh, in the US. But it makes some people nervous. I don't don't think I'll ever use it. I don't even know what it is. Cryptocurrency is like, you know, in the the computer. Um, But we haven't reached the same level of shock as you're talking about, you know, the shock uh, of, of the Civil War. Is it because cryptocurrency is still more or less a private affair that is not imposed by the government as crypto as, as legal tender? Do you think that's the difference that people haven't been shocked
1: yet? I think there are two things. One is uh, it's going up, and people like things that are going up, whether dot com stocks, whether tulips, uh, whether it's a game stock, uh, you know that uh, that meme stock that was usually yeah, yeah. worth. Uh, 353. It wasn't worth that. It was trading at that. Another never one ended. I
0: did not buy on time. <laughs> it, was never, it was never worth
1: anything uh, close to that. And the other thing I think is there's a, um, uh, we have an unofficial, um, what I would call digitocracy, a, a rule by the, the digital elite. Uh, you know, there, there was a time when uh, uh, investment bankers ruled the roost, a time when uh, oil uh, buccaneers and, 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 uh, Oil drillers—they uh, were—they were the kingpins, and now it's the digitocracy, and the rest of us who were fumbling with our iPhones and so on, since we don't understand it, uh, really. Yeah, We're—we're uh, yeah. we're very much taken if—if if everybody says, "Oh, this is this is going to have all sorts of great, useful uh, purposes," this this uh, crypto coin, doggy coin, that coin, <laughs> all the others. Yeah. Uh, who are we to discount it? And the price is going up, and I think. Um, you know, I, I think that's what's happening. I'll just point out uh, a, a difference that I know is true between the greenbacks uh, and the cryptocurrency, because uh, they were very worried about inflation, and Ie about the greenback losing its value in the in the 1860s when they passed this, and they made certain to do something else besides this bill, uh, uh, but concurrently and shortly after the greenback bill was passed, they passed a massive tax bill. So what they wanted was. A, a real tangible source of revenue behind the government that was issuing these greenbacks. They wanted the productive wealth of the people of the of the loyal states to be standing behind these greenbacks. So there, it wasn't really just paper behind them. And, um, uh, and
2: the tax sort of, back you know, then
0: was pretty revolutionary taxing. Completely it
1: was new. There had been no income tax, yeah. no internal taxes, only the tariff. That's why it's called the Internal Revenue uh, Service, to distinguish it from the uh, first taxes for the first eighty years of the country, which has only been external, the tariff. So yeah, the, the inter- tariffs
0: at the customs yeah. houses. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the Internal Revenue Bureau was created in the Civil War forerunner of the Internal Revenue Service. You don't see anything behind crypto. You don't see taxes. You don't see oil wells. Uh, you know, you don't see uh, fine art. Uh, you don't see anything behind crypto. <laughs> some, uh, except, some cryptos except, are backed by
0: other cryptos, which yeah, is almost like a
1: Ponzi scheme. <laughs> you see scarcity behind that, yeah. and plenty of things are scarce uh you know um uh, uh, uh um, you know my grandmother's china was scarce but but it's 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 not it's um, valuable i doubt it but um it's uh so i, I don't see any um monetary basis of crypto i see it as a, a speculative commodity
0: uh, mr Lowenstein you mentioned the word several times that i want us to just spend a minute on inflation. Last month, it was 7.9%, and I'm sure it'll be higher by the end of this month when the data comes out uh, mid-April. But the point that you make in, uh, in your book really boggles my mind that when paper money, the greenbacks came out, the government actually restrained itself in how much it printed or what it did to sort of, it tried to prevent inflation and um, this exercise of restraint, now, I find it shocking. I'm using that as force because in a war, you would want to print the heck out of money. Did That's I get right. that book? Go ahead.
1: No, no, if, if you got it correct. And, and the distinction between today, I think, is um, is very useful. They were um, extremely worried about inflation then. Uh, they had the example of the Revolutionary War where the government printed continentals, which, as the oh, saying yeah. goes, weren't worth a yeah. continental. Uh, also in the more or less in the living memory of people then alive, or the uh, a common memory was experienced in the French Revolution, also in the Napoleonic Wars, terrible inflation. So um, you know they knew that uh, uh, just printing money willy-nilly, particularly in wartime, when you always get greater demand, uh, uh, can have this effect. Uh, and they took it very seriously. Even the people um, who sponsored uh, the greenback. Uh, Eldridge Spaulding was 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 the primary sponsor. Said it was a measure of necessity, not of choice, and um, they promised to limit uh, the uh, uh, printing to 150 million. And they all uh, they ultimately did three of these issues because they they spent them all. They ran out, and they did it two more times. Lincoln was also very worried about it. And um, to put it in perspective, the 450 million that they that they had, I think the maximum outstanding was. At the end of the war was 437 million, but in any case, roughly that number—that was one sixth, one sixth of the total war debt. So you know that's a that's a would strike most people I think as a reasonably modest proportion. Yeah, enough to liquefy the economy, and the rest they were able to borrow because they had this tax base. Creditors trusted them, Uh, very important, and they they and they created a new banking system that would outlast the war—the national banking system. Uh, which was um, uh, created another uniform national currency with very tight limits, regulations on how much uh, uh, they could print, also for the same anti-inflationary
0: reason. I, I, I want to get into those uh, those two last points that you made, but before we jump off to those important points, what I was I'm wondering if you can articulate is this: Are there any Lessons about inflation. Yes, I think there- Secretary Yellen and <laughs> Chairman Powell here. Well, I think for Chairman Powell, what is is curious to
1: me is the great inflation uh, of our time was yeah. the nineteen seventies uh, and the early eighties. Living memory. Living memory. I remember it. It grew out of a war. Uh, President Johnson tried to fight his his famous two wars at once: the guns and butter out of Vietnam. Uh, it was terribly hard to cure. Uh, 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 I remember Warren Buffett said famously that inflation is like a, is, is like a virginity. It's very hard to reinstate once once you've lost it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so um, uh, you know and oh, and, and we got into this framework of or this mindset of inflation's over. Uh, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Modern monetary thinking. Uh, we can print all the money we want. It won't be inflationary anymore. And this is now being taught at all the, at all the best schools. Uh, There's a lot of people in and out of government who are flirting with it. And, um, uh, you know, as late as, as last summer, uh, you know, inflation is, what, then 6%? And, and they're still not talking about raising rates at all, at all. I mean, you know, one year ago, they were saying there would not be a single rate rise uh, until 2024. And, and this is at a point when the economy was fully back on speed. It, the employment level was the same as it was pre-COVID, but but the economy was growing and had been growing for many quarters at a very quick pace. Uh, demand was clearly uh, outpacing supply. Uh, uh, Larry Summers made a very good point about this that uh, the current uh, Fed and uh, people in the administration have blamed us on the on the supply uh, you know, supply issues, but but uh, that's not the fed's business the Fed can't do anything about supply supply is fixed the fed's job is to calibrate uh, demand .ie the supply of money so that it's appropriate for whatever supplies there is yeah. So it's not, an ex- it's not an excuse for the Fed to say well it's it's a fault <laughs> of supply you know that's why there's too much money if there's too much money there's too much money and I I this um, this sort of cavalier attitude now we're up to uh, uh, The the Fed's uh, favorite inflation measure was six point four percent. The C yesterday, the CPI is seven point nine. Wage growth is very strong, and that's really the strongest leading indicator of inflation. It's now crept into the services. It's not just commodities and and wheat and oil and so on. So, um, you know, I don't. uh, uh, I I think they're going to have a hell of a time uh, uh, containing it. Maybe,
0: maybe they should read your book and take some lessons from the discipline of the Civil War uh, Union Administration. We'll be back after a short break to talk about how does civil war permanently change America's financial systems. We'll be right back.
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you!
0: Mr. Lowenstein, let's revisit the major union government financial innovations that helped finance the Civil War, because I think they're pretty fascinating. It's really a sea change in how our economy worked. We can identify them, and I'll just run a tally. There, there were several. So uh,
1: there are several, and they really run in logical order. The first is the greenback, uh, legal tenter, printing money, printing pieces of paper and calling them money. And this is, these are bills that- uh, By the national issued, government. By the national government. Yeah. They can't be exchanged for anything else. They can't be redeemed. They have no expiration date. They're, they're, they're pieces of paper in your pocket for, issued for, for perpetuity money. First time it's ever happened uh, in the United States, and they were unique in the, in the Western world uh, at that time. The next, uh, the next uh, innovation happens right after that, and it's just as important, and that is a tax system. And it is a, a hugely innovative and revolutionary tax system. Before this, the government had relied only on a tariff and a smattering of land sales to fund itself. In, in wartime, not surprisingly, trade was far down. Of course, all the southern ports had rebelled, so they weren't, um, they weren't supplying uh, duties to Washington uh, anyway. And the union needed a lot more uh, tax revenue than the tariff could supply. And so they uh, they taxed uh, excise taxes on every profession, every kind of professional fee, income taxes on businesses, on persons. They sent assessors around to, to individual homes and businesses. They sent then collectors around. And it was a, a quite, um, really for its time, intrusive uh, government uh, program. Uh, necessary. It still is intrusive. <laughs> it still is. And, you know, nobody... Uh, 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 nobody particularly liked it, although although, and we don't really know, by the way, what the level of compliance was because they had no statistics on what the total income was, uh, how much they should raise. All we know is how much they did raise, and and whether that was you know two thirds of what might have been owed, or one third, or something like that. We don't know, but they raised a lot, and it was um, it was really e- extremely useful in in, in propping up. Uh, the union currency, because it gave investors the idea that um, that there was something behind uh, uh, the North's uh, financial strength. For and that clarification's
0: needs- sake, before we go, get to the next point, I just want to make sure that this is clear in my mind and also for our audience. So, before this system, this internal taxing system, the internal revenue system that you were talking about, it, 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 the period before it is, is is akin to. Us Americans today, our government's money only coming from tariffs and trade with China and, and Canada and Europe. And none of us are taxed, right? It was something to that effect, right? Yes. If you can imagine a developing country,
1: and my British friends say they, they, they consider the United States to be in those days a, a developing country. <laughs> it's a developing, you know, and, company, yeah. and, and 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 you know, maybe some island somewhere, and they don't really have any industry, but they have a little customs house, and when the tourists or or whoever comes through with with the imported goods, they pay a tariff on it. And that was the sole support of the government. Oh, my God. So taxing was
0: revolutionary. Yes, we didn't have much
1: government support before the war either. So so that was the second big change. Let's go to the third. The third big change was to sell bond drives uh, to the public directly. So not just to float loans with banks, but to go to every city, every town, every hill and dale and uh, much like investment bankers do today, but, but they didn't exist uh, before the Civil War to float massive bond drives. They did it uh, partly directly and partly through the offices of a very far-seeing banker who was the chief agent of the Treasury, paid a commission, of course, Jay Cook. Oh, oh yeah. So they sold billions of dollars of, of union bonds. These were the precursors of the, the famous liberty bonds in uh, in World War I and similar bonds in uh, in the Second World War. And, and, and ever since, uh, maybe your grandparents uh, you know, would have gotten you a, a savings bond when you were born or something, you, you okay. cash in. That was a common uh, practice, at least some time ago. Anyway, it all started then. And uh, Jay Cook, uh, the financier, and Salmon Chase, the Treasury Secretary, had the idea that the American people themselves could be um, uh, an unseen front, an unseen army in the war, because their savings pooled together. Uh, would be um, uh, just provide a, a momentum that the South couldn't touch, and and this proved to be true. Uh, they they just uh, overwhelmed the South financially with the money that these bond drives raised, and that was um, you know this set the stage for private bond drives for the the great railroads and steel uh, uh, mills of the eighteen eighties and nineties and so on. When when the Gilded Age, the Industrial Revolution, really became fully financialized. Uh, the era of Morgan and and all those people. It, 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 it really, it, its a predecessor uh, was the Jay Cook, Salmon Chase, uh, bond drives. So that was a
0: third big where 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 were people, um, especially um, people of the north, buying uh, bonds issued by state governments in the past. They, or- they, they, they bought some. They yeah. bought some issued
1: So it wasn't unique to have to, to buy a bond, but on the scale uh, that they bought them. And, and and okay. and with the breadth. and uh, you know, uh, uh, Jay Cook was very clever. He um, he pitched them as uh, investments, uh, obviously as, as good investments. He said the the productive power of the you know, whole United States is behind these, and he could say that because because the tax system, you know, the, yeah. the, the United States government had the right to tax the railroads and 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 whiskey distillers and farmers and everybody else. So so he was able uh, to say that. Uh, But he also um, exploited people's patriotism. Uh, He said, here's a way for you to do your part. You know, people are at the front. They're fighting. Some of them are dying. Many of them are dying. uh, And here's a way that you too can can play a part. He published the amounts that various cities raised so that uh, cities would compete to see with neighboring towns who could raise more. Very much like charity drives today. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: So he played on people's desire to want to see him to want to be or want to seem patriotic, he wrote these very uh, treacly articles about um, homespun people showing up at his office uh, to buy bonds. A, a farmer, a war veteran, an orphan girl. I'm sure he made up uh, all these things, but they were
0: they were <laughs> playing on the sentiments. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very
1: very sentimental. You know, extremely sentimentalized uh, homespun uh, tales, uh, but they worked. So and we- and Go ahead. So there's one more, uh, and and all these uh, measures were um, to a later to, to to a greater or lesser degree uh, wartime expediency. Uh, the greenbacks were ultimately retired, although of course we have a fiat money today that looks like them. Uh, the income tax was ultimately declared to be unconstitutional. It came back, obviously, uh, to after a constitutional amendment. Yeah, uh, we'll all be reminded of that on. On April fifteenth, exactly. it's, it's still constitutional. You have to pay it, uh, and um, uh, you know the the bond drives weren't uh, weren't necessary um, in anything like that scale for a long time after the war. But the last um, reform, perhaps, was the most remarkable because it, it looked to the future, uh, and they knew it was looked. It looked to the post war future. I, I said earlier in the show that the banking system wasn't really a system. Each state chartered its own banks, own private banks they each responded to varying regulations uh, some uh, strict many not strict at all many of these banks would go uh, broke each bank circulated notes that was that those were their ious these notes served as a sort of a uh, ersatz currency with no legal standing uh, in the in the regions around where the uh, the, the banks operated uh, uh, salmon chase uh, uh, derived or designed a very complicated national system of nationally chartered banks.
0: Oh, this is the fourth one that you were. This is the
1: fourth about. one yeah. that would all issue the same currency. So that as they said, uh, a dollar in, in New York will be the same as a dollar in California, the same as a dollar as Kentucky, uh, extremely important. The banks that issued them, the United States would issue them, but they would be backed by the assets of the banks, the federal government. Uh, set the rules for what assets these banks had to have. So they were money good, and they proved to be uh, money good. Uh, And this was a system that not only uh, uh, helped to finance the war, because it didn't really even get going until the war's uh, last year or so, but it survived for another uh, 50 plus years uh, afterwards. And it really catapulted the United States onto the world financial stage so that by the time World War I began, uh, we had the financial wherewithal uh, uh, not to be a borrower nation, anymore to be a creditor nation, to, which is, of course, what we became, lending oh, to, awesome. to to Britain and France and the Allies.
0: And, and so this is a major reform uh, done in the heat of, uh, of battle. Um, uh, Mr. Lowenstein, you said a national bank. This is Civil War. Salmon Chase was working on it, and uh, it was a great financial feat, uh, actually economic sort of accomplishment on his part. but. We didn't have the Fed until 1913. What is this bank you're talking about?
1: So so it was a national banking system. I I apologize. The terminology is a bit confusing. It was a system of banks that were uh, privately owned by associations of of investors, the Chase, the Chemical Bank, uh,
0: uh, uh,
1: whatever. But, But they were called national banks because they were chartered by the federal government. And oh, they were okay. kind of like the first
0: Bank of the United States,
1: second Bank of the United States in that sense. Yes, yes, the first uh, the first bank of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, the first Bank of Buffalo, the second bank. and and uh, for a while, each bank in a city had to be denoted that way. Then they liberalized, you didn't have to call it that, but in in many cities today, if you go to an old bank building, you know those those uh, Roman pillars uh, yeah. out front, you, you may still see chiseled into the into the foundation zone. First National Bank or Second National Bank. Oh, I will have uh, to look for that. So, so those banks were um, uh, nationally regulated. Uh, they issued a national currency, uh, but they were actually owned by private groups of investors. Uh, they were a hybrid. Uh, the, the idea of a central bank like the Federal Reserve, a national bank in that sense, was still too hot. Even during the, even with the Democrats out of the Congress, uh, they didn't... Um, want to go back and refight that very painful battle of the Andrew Jackson era.
0: You and I actually had a previous podcast about how the Federal Reserve was established. And even in 1913, it was too hot. They had to have secret meetings, and that's a different podcast, prior podcast episode. (laughs) Um, What's amazing about these four um, financial innovations, uh, Mm -hmm. the greenbacks, the internal tax system, the income tax, uh, bonds that were widely distributed to the public, and finally the national banking system—they um, sort of went away and came back again. We live with all of those now. We do, we do.
1: I mean, we we certainly have fear. The, the money we have today is is really like the greenbacks. It's it's money you carry in your wallet. Doesn't pay interest. You can't redeem it. Uh, it's legal tender. It's as good as you know. It is it is the money of the country. There's no. You, you can't change it in for what the real money is. That is the real money. Yeah. We have the tax system. Uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, John Sherman, a legislature, legislator in the Senate at the time uh, said, we're taxing everything on the earth. And one of his constituents said, everything on the earth and under the earth. Well, I'm sure that's, <laughs> I'm sure that's how the IRS today feels uh, exactly. to many people. But yeah. um, uh, that's uh, that's how it is. Uh, we obviously have invested banking syndicates and, and uh, bond drives and and, uh, you know, voluminous sales of of uh, federal securities. Yeah, that, yeah. That's part of the financial. That, that becomes
0: part of a, sort of anyone's portfolio that they have a financial advisor and they buy some set. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the, the national banking system uh, we have in a different form.
1: We have a uniform currency uh, and we have banks that are themselves national. So, you know, the the, the you know JP Morgan and, and City and, and Bank of America and so on, they are themselves um uh, for all intents and purposes uh, and, we bank, the and, we, and we have a
0: central bank which is we
1: have a set and we have a central bank which is the Fed
0: yeah. let's take a break here stay with me and Mr. Lowenstein as we get into the perspective
2: did you know you can preview our podcasts that's right just click the podcast highlights button on our website www.thepeel.news and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right?
0: Mr. Rollingstein, Americans often talk about the Civil War as if the entirety of the north the union its people and politicians backed and sort of flanked uh, president lincoln's ideologies and and his war policies and what have you was that really the case
1: well no it wasn't um uh, he you know he he won obviously only because uh, the south uh, seceded he won the first time because because um there were four candidates running uh, so he was very much uh, you know, a minority candidate. Uh, like an
0: underdog w- between the others? Well, it was, the a, others?
1: It, was a, it was a strange election to handicap because there were two pro-Southern candidates. There was a, a, a sort of a tepid pro-Union candidate. There was Lincoln. And um, Lincoln won just enough states. He, he didn't win it um, only on the slavery issue. Uh, slavery was a very hot issue in the border states, Horace Greeley said, uh, uh, the population, the public will only tolerate a little, he said they'll only swallow a little anti-slavery. And he suggested that Lincoln, <laughs> he's talking about he, the North
0: population.
1: Yes. He, he, suggested that the, well, though, he was not, Lincoln wasn't going to win any votes in the South. That was, yeah. that was foregone. Mm-hmm. And, um, he suggested the Republicans stress, uh, uh, economic issues. And and they did, they ran on a Homestead Act, which, which of course they passed, uh, They ran on a a, uh, promise to enact the Transcontinental Railroad, a huge uh, uh, economic project, uh, which uh, they passed, Mm -hmm. and on the tariff. The tariff was very popular in the coal districts of Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, and those two states uh, were the ones that put uh, Lincoln over the top. Um, Interestingly, uh, uh, four years later, uh, although Lincoln got a much higher percentage of the vote because uh, because the South wasn't in the, you know, wasn't voting in the in the Northern elections anymore. If you look at the vote he got in the Northern states, it really wasn't uh, that much different. Uh, it was hardly different at all. Just a, a couple of percentage points higher. Oh wow! Uh, Le- Lincoln's slavery policy was very controversial. Uh, you know, the, the the progressives of his day were very unhappy uh, with his gradualist approach. But um, he was very cognizant of the fact that the Republicans could be thrown out of office, and if they were. Uh, uh, the Democrats well might make a peace, the South would remain uh, independent, and slavery would, would remain uh, uh, forever or, or for a long time. Oh my God, that would be a and, calamity. And, and, and after the Emancipation Proclamation was announced in September of, uh, of 1862, uh, the Republicans suffered very heavy defeats in the fall election. They lost their majority uh, in the House. So uh, Lincoln knew whereof uh, he spoke. Uh, and and uh, uh, there were riots in New York the following uh, summer. When they when the draft came in, and these were uh, they've been known as draft riots, but they're really race riots against uh, from poor whites uh, rioting and lynching uh, many dozens and dozens of completely innocent uh, uh, Black Americans who just happened to be walking on the streets in the wrong place at the wrong time. Wow! Uh, so and this was out of some fear uh, drummed up that uh, liberated slaves would come north and and take their jobs. It was co- completely. Uh, fallacious. There was uh, about one percent of the northern population was African American around this time, uh, and uh, only 67 percent of the whole country was. Had, had there been some, even had there been some uh, mass exodus, which there wasn't for many many years. Uh, but but um, these policies were um, uh, were controversial, and in, in some respects, the, the patriotism uh, behind the war effort muted. Controversies that came out later. I'll give you one interesting example: um, the Legal Tender Act was very popular. Uh, it, um, although it was debated hotly, it was widely accepted, uh, and, uh, and 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 the went about its way. And then they they enacted an, another booster shot of legal tender where they needed more currency, and then finally a third booster shot. Uh, but Did they I have to at pass a vote,
0: new act every time, pass a new bill. Yeah, for but, yeah,
1: because it was an authorization, so they authorized okay. certain. Yeah. amount. And, but if you look at the vote closely, um, Westerners were much more likely to vote for the Legal Tender Act, and Easterners less so. Why? Because um, the Eastern banks were good. Uh, their, uh, their IUs were good. There was good money circulating and in, in greater quantities in the East. So people in the good East- Good private money, of, you mean? Yes. So pe- yes. yes. Circulating medium, as they called it. Yeah. So people in the East didn't feel the same need. Uh, but they went along with Legal Tender. After the war, the greenback became the great issue of the 1870s, whether to retire them and go back to the gold standard or whether, as the farm states wanted, uh, to have more greenbacks. The farm states wanted inflation. They wanted a lot of bills circulating. The East, run by bankers, they wanted strict money, gold standard, you know, tight money, uh, low inflation. And um, so this, this became the hottest political issue, bar none, of the 1870s. Uh, there was actually a party called the Greenback Party, advocating oh, wow. for war. So these um, tensions like this that had been largely suppressed during the war uh, um, uh, you know, came out of the bag post-war. Another one was a tariff that, that people accepted during the war because there was a need for more revenue. They raised the tariff several times uh, after the war. This became extremely controversial, as it often was in American history, because, of course, the industrial states wanted the tariff, and the farm states didn't.
0: So, um, exigencies of war sort of cloaked over these issues. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how how does how does some of these political divisions compare to our current political divisions? Um, let's put politics aside for a second. Like you know, um, Mr. Trump and all of that. No, like political divisions about infrastructure, build back better, inflation. We're dealing with that now, and taxing the rich. You think it's to the same level as it was back then in the union?
1: Well, I think we have the same division about uh, do we or don't we or do we not want a strong, vigorous federal government? Uh, Do we want the federal government uh, to be in charge of the healthcare system for everybody in virtually every development?
0: When you ask those questions, I see some of those arguments in your book, literally. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Yes. They were discussing the same thing.
1: Absolutely. So in every country in Western Europe, Canada, and so on, that's not even an issue. They don't lose five minutes debating it in this country. It's a very strong issue. Yeah. You know, most countries have one series of securities laws. We have 50 set security laws, 50, <laughs> 50 different laws about abortion. Uh, and, um, I think we have, um, you know, very, um, serious, uh, very serious political divide there. We have very serious, um, uh, cultural political divides. Uh, how are we going to teach our schools? How are we going to teach uh, some of the history we've been talking about, history race relations in this country, uh, very serious uh, divides about that, that I don't see as um, uh, amenable to any um, immediate compromise. And uh, disturbingly, in one parallel is that I ran across somebody, uh, some letter uh, in the antebellum period. Uh, this is a, a representative in Washington who said that we used to all get together and uh, play poker, uh, you know, both sides of the line. We don't do that anymore. Uh, that sounds this, like something that the Congress people would say now. Yes. Sir. Well, Charles Sumner, a senator from my state, Massachusetts, uh, gave a speech, very anti-slavery speech, in which he accused um, uh, plantation owners of being harlots, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of a sexual term. Yeah, he inflamed yeah. the Southerners, uh, a congressman from uh, South Carolina came across the aisle, uh, the hall to, into the Senate and beat Senator Sumner to a pulp uh, uh, with his wow. cane. Uh, and, and as a reward, he was sent mementos saluting him canes from across the South. He was a hero. Um, you know, we haven't gotten wow. that far, but we, we have gotten really to um, uh, a place where there's not really good blood or goodwill between um, uh, most of the people, I think, the, the two um, uh, major parties and and uh, you know they, they were packing heat after this attack on uh, on Sumner they, they they were they were arriving at the Capitol with arms I don't think we've gotten there uh, of course we did have um, some Republicans
0: were bringing uh, were bringing uh, yes. I think weapons into the into Congress after January 6th, weren't they
1: well, well we had
0: January I don't think you can, can they but we
1: you anyway we had January 6th itself yeah so I see um I see the political uh and the political cultural divisions as being um uh you know similarly implacable uh perhaps to slavery and and and, you know i'm in the north and many of my friends say this is this is not where i am but they say gee it sounds great to have the south go then we can do what we want in the congress and (laughs) and this is what um Uh, this is what horace this is what horace Greeley said at the time erring sisters go in peace but I think they're great strengths to being in one country and great strengths that come from uh, listening to each other and, and being forced to compromise. But but that's not an art that's um, uh, very well practiced right now.
0: So yeah, I'm worried. it's not, it's not. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about the U.S. Civil War as it applies to our current moment, what would it be? Just one thing. I think the extreme leadership of Abraham Lincoln Uh, The
1: extreme humility uh, with which he went about, uh, his stoicism, his understanding that he was leading a country even within the North, composed of greatly different views. Uh, The poet James Lowell said, um, he leads so gently, he seems to be following, seems to be following. Oh, that's Uh, a good one. And, um, you know, he got us to um, a remarkable place. He effected great changes. Not just financially, but uh, in our system and reach of government. Of course, he ended slavery. Uh, he, he he governed in the most divided time we ever have had, and yet um, did so much. So um, uh, it was it was um, so so rich an experience to be working in his letters and and speeches and thinking and writing about him. And and I hope readers have the same feeling if they read about him.
0: That was a great conclusion, capstone to our podcast. Um, Mr. Lowenstein, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. Of course, you're welcome back to the P.L. News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At The news, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.ThePeel.News. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the ThePeel.News.